Welcome to The Cultured Commuter, a cultured approach to the daily commute. I'm John Church. And I'm Catherine Moran. In this episode, we climb the Eiffel Tower, a wonder of industrial design that has become one of the most recognizable landmarks in the world. A touchstone of the eternal human struggle between old and new, the Eiffel Tower is an ideal metaphor for the emerging modern city. And today we're visiting the Eiffel Tower, that iconic structure, the symbol of France. It's visited by almost 7 million people a year, which means it really must be intriguing to a vast segment of the population. And it's attracted that many people since it was completed in 1889. And certainly at the time it was commissioned, it was the tallest structure in the world from 1889 to 1930 weighing in at 1,063 feet high, which is the equivalent of an 81-story building. It's this icon of modernity, what industry created. And while it was being designed, it's set in Paris, which had just been through one of the most radical transformations of a city in Western history. From the 1850s through through 1870, the Emperor Napoleon III had tasked Baron Haussmann with the complete redesign of Paris bulldozing Grand Boulevards through the old heart of the medieval city. So there's this emerging conflict between the old and the new, the merits of what was good in the past, but the shining new future. And then all of a sudden, appearing in this city, finally completed by the 70s, they wanted to show off this glittering new city. So what do they do? They host a World's Fair. The French poet Charles Baudelaire is one of the people who lives through this transformation of Paris, this almost sloughing the medieval skin of this little Warren-like city and emerging into the beautiful city of lights that we know today. And he published a really famous book called Fleur de Mal and wrote a poem specifically about the experience of walking down these wide boulevards and the fast pace of the city where he had the experience of passing by a woman and having an instant attraction to her. But then that was fleeting, and it was gone in just a second, and he knew he might never see her again. Some modern way of living. And I think that that is embodied in the insertion of the Eiffel Tower right into modern France. Because Paris was a city of uniformity. The emperor and Baron Haussmann had ordered that all the facades be uniform, height restrictions, so it created a very elegant city. For those who loved it. But for some of the critics, it created a city that was too uniform and sometimes almost anonymous. It could be seen that way. And when we consider the Eiffel Tower's erection, it changed forever the skyline of modern Paris. The base of the Eiffel Tower loomed atop every other structure in Haussmann's Paris, making it really seem like a monolith. But a monolith to what? And there's this firmament going on, arguing in the cafes of the city between artists and writers about what Paris should be. And as you make your way up into the Eiffel Tower, you have this bird's eye view of this entire city, this redesigned city. It's a way of looking at the world no one had really experienced before. No one had ever been that high. No, they hadn't, except for the wild and crazy balloonists who had the only experience that we're all so familiar with of looking down on a city and seeing it reduced to geometric planes and forms, being able to take in the entirety of a city in one view. There's a democratization of the city in that way. And so you have this famous 
creation, but how did it all come about? Well, of course, in the grand tradition of major European capitals, there was a competition. And there were over 100 submissions for this symbol of modernity. And who won, of course, was the engineer. The World's Fair 1889 is coming to Paris. And the contest to create the building or structure that's going to be really the face of it, the entrance, the most visible part of this iconic event. And the commission goes to an engineer. Gustave Eiffel. It's amazingly modern because he had collaborated along with Coughlin on the armature for the Statue of Liberty in the 1870s. So they already have a, a degree of fame, a degree of accomplishment, but now they're doing something in the heart of Paris. And it's worth noting that in 1851, England had hosted the Great Exhibition of Technology and Modernity. And Joseph Paxton, who was in fact really a master gardener, won the commission to design its exhibition hall, which was called the Crystal Palace. This palace employed industrially mass-produced building materials, a modular system of cast iron and plate glass, and the Eiffel Tower builds off of this tradition of technology and modernity using puddled iron. And imagine your, your backdrop is Paris for all of this. So, you know, you have this selection of the engineer versus an architect. This is a direct reflection of the, of the controversy going on in life between the old and the new. In the old way, you would have had a proper competition with classically trained architects. Now, the engineer is paramount, the engineer of the new modern world. But not everyone liked the design. No, a committee of 300 was formed who objected on artistic grounds. It's significant, the number, right, 300, because they selected one member of the committee for each meter of the tower's height. And in a way, doesn't it make sense that they were led by Charles Garnier? Who else? Who who was the architect of the Paris Opera, the very centerpiece of Napoleon III and Baron Ausmann's redesign of Paris, and that opera house, the most famous opera house in the world, and a model for so many others, is a direct reflection of Greek Roman, Renaissance, historic architecture. It's classical, historic architecture. He was deeply offended by an engineer creating this this metal superstructure in the middle of his classical city. Right, and really the insertion of this big metal structure caused the artists to circulate a petition against the Eiffel Tower. And they published it on Valentine's Day in the French newspaper Le Temps. So appropriate. Not a valentine. And of course, they said, we, passionate devotees of the untouched beauty of Paris, protest with all our strength this useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower. They really hated it. They called it giddy, a ridiculous tower, a gigantic black smokestack, and a hateful column of bolted sheet metal. And they went on and on talking about how it crushed under its barbaric bulk Notre Dame and the Louvre and the Arc de Triomphe and all of these great monuments of the past were utterly humiliated by this new this new incursion in their in their urban landscape. And when we think about what's going on in art more broadly at this time period, this is when the Impressionists are really emerging in Paris. And the traditional academic system that was favored by Baron Haussmann and Napoleon III and certainly Charles Garnier 
is the same system that rejected the new painting techniques employed by the Impressionists and other modernists. So we see once again the Eiffel Tower as a symbol of modernity's challenge to the status quo. Now Paris is such an ancient city. It's founded by the Romans. It has a medieval history. French kings and queens left their mark on the city. But at this time, it's also a burgeoning new city with new ideas. It's the firmament of everything avant-garde and ahead of the game. Well, okay, the controversy's raging. It'll continue to rage on. But the fair has to open, and this is designed as a gateway or a centerpiece building for the World's Fair of 1889. So it goes up, regardless it, of the protests. It goes up. And it's actually named the Universal Exposition. Universal. It's the World's Fair. And it's designed to mark the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution. That in itself is an interesting point, because they're commemorating a historical moment. But in a way, it's really a stage for everything new. Well, especially considering the French Revolution didn't go as smoothly as the American Revolution. So they looked to celebrate modern France, internationalism, and really globalism. The new things were really key, and one of the most popular new things was the elevator. Otis Elevator brings the Parisian audience up 81 stories to the observation deck on top of the Eiffel Tower. It really was a radical experience. And the other popular section was the Gallery of Machines, 16,000 machines, phonographs, steam engines, all the new technology being created, all the gadgetry of the modern world that people would come and look over, gawk at, inquire about. The Hall of Machines also had Thomas Edison and his phonograph. In some ways, all of the technology that we enjoy today sees its infancy emerge at this Paris World's Fair. And the French writer Charles Pagai said, the world changed more in the 30 years surrounding the year 1900 than it had since the time of Jesus Christ. And when we think about the kinds of exhibitions observed at the Paris World's Fair, including the Eiffel Tower, you really get an understanding of just what that means. Exhibitions from Egypt, Java, the Far East, the Middle East. They had indigenous people from these far-flung places come build habitats that were reflective of their cultural identity. And partly interpreted through an imperialist lens. So this was the height of empire building. So there's, again, uh, a pro and a con, as there were around everything in this tower, this fair, this time. Um, but I'll tell you, everyone was curious. It's true. Everyone came to call. And especially considering photography is in its infancy. 28 million visitors come to the World's Fair over the six-month period that it's open. And they are from all walks of life. And photographs are recording this, is recording the fame of it. And let's not forget the celebrities. We have Sarah Bernhardt, the Prince of Wales, George I of Greece, and the Shah of Persia. And, and maids and shop girls who are all coming to see Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley uh, have sharpshooting events and people in the street in Cairo belly dancing and smoking a hookah. You know, it begins as a structure born of controversy, of arguments between old and new, but you can't keep back progress. You mm -hmm. can't hold it back. It becomes an icon regardless, and even its perception changes over time. What was considered and a position on the landscape of Paris by some really becomes generally 
an accepted landmark of the city by everyone. It cannot be underscored how the technological innovations employed in the construction of the Crystal Palace and the Eiffel Tower enable the growth of the modern megacity. They really enable size, scale of the population that we live with today. And we almost lost it because it would have been torn down in 1909, but it was useful as a radio tower, yet another new technology. Built in 1889, you know, it's on the cusp of a new century. It really is looking out onto the 20th century and all that science and technology would bring to change the world. And I think its role in the future was so important. Its maker has the last word. And Gustav Eiffel said, I ought to be jealous of the tower. She is more famous than I am. Now that's a living legacy. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast where we will continue to connect the big ideas and small details that shape world culture. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from Le Toile Danse and is provided courtesy of Maidon.